Bibles, excuse me, please turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Um, if you want to follow along in one of the pew uh, Bibles that are in front of you there, that we're going to be looking at page 1131, Matthew chapter 16. Um, while you're turning there, you may also want to, if you'd like, um, mark First Peter, because we're going to flip there relatively early on and quickly, and, uh, but I'm going to look at a couple sections in First Peter as well. But our focus will be on Matthew. <clears throat> so we'll be reading Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And again, that's found on page 1,131 in the Pew Bible that's in front of you there. <clears throat> when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. I'm sorry, I'm reading through verse 23. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would please be with us now as we study your word and as we hear the words of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you will, you will transform us you will change us, that these words from Jesus are spoken by your very Son, recorded throughout all of history, and inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit into the writers of Matthew and, and the other gospel writers to be read by our generation, believed by our generation, and to transform us and to change us. So help us, we pray. Help us as we listen and as we hear that we will hear and apply these things to ourselves. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. <clears throat> I was recently reading a book. I am reading a book about a certain region of the country. And one of the things that the author said about that region is that it's known for being backward. It's known for being backward. And, uh, and no, it's not about Mercer County, but it's, <laughs> but it's known for being backward. And the author said a very interesting thing. He said, that's for better or for worse. And what he meant by that is this that sometimes when moving forward is not really good, being backward is actually a good thing. 
and he was talking about this region of the country where there was respect for authority, respect for parents, there was a, a religion, a, a, a deep religion, and such like that, and that that backwardness was actually forward. And, uh, and, and I, I was thinking about that, but let me add another thought here. This, over the last few weeks, we have been watching uh, as Afghanistan has had this tragic turn of events and the Taliban are back in power. Now, the, now for those of us who have memories that go back 20 years uh, and we can remember 20 years ago, we remember what it was like when the Taliban used to be in power. And uh, I remember seeing videos that were smuggled out of Afghanistan uh, in the late 1990s that were showing mass executions of people in, in stadiums. And so that's the image that we have of these uh, people called the Taliban. And so then, 20 years ago, when there was an invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban were, were taken out of power. And, uh, and they, were, they had to go underground. And they went underground for 20 years. And they raised an entire new generation of Taliban in 20 years. So the 20-year-old Taliban guys who were walking around with their AKs uh, were, 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 were babies. They never knew what it was like to not to be in power. They were, they were a hidden generation in caves and, in, and back in villages. But somehow the Taliban kept their vision alive. They kept uh, training new, new generation, and they kept fighting. And their goal, the Taliban's goal, as all fundamentalist uh, Islamic people are, is that they eventually the entire world would be a Muslim caliphate. The entire world would be a Muslim-governed world. And they long for the day that they will raise the black uh, ISIS flag over the White House. They long for that day. And they are convinced that that day is coming. Therefore, what they've looked at over the last 20 years, what they considered the last 20 years was just a blip on the screen. That was no big deal. That was a small little turnaround. But we're back in power, and we're going to win. Now, we know, and I'm going to seek to really focus this, uh, us on this t today, we know that they're not going to win. We know that they're going to fail. We, not because of American military might, that's not at all, because Jesus is going to win. That's what we're going to look at today. We know that it's, you know, it's, they're going to ultimately fail. But I want to focus on, I want to just point out something. They showed a level of endurance, a level of perseverance, and a level of, of vision and hope and drive that kept them going for 20 years, 20 years. And there's something about that that is backward, yes, and yet, there's something about that that I think we need to, as Christians, uh, take notice of. For instance, we live in a culture, the Western culture, that has a lot of weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses of our culture is that we really want things to happen quickly. Things have to happen quickly. Uh, we expect things. We expect instant results. We don't like it if our computer just lags for a, a second or two. We don't, we don't like that. We, we need to have instant results. Things have to happen or else we get frustrated and we give up easily. And if our computer starts to slow down and the internet is slow, 
slow. We just slam the, 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 uh, the, the, the laptop up and we're just frustrated like that. We expect things to go quickly and to go easily uh, here in Western culture. We've been nurtured to that. Uh, we, we tend to emotionalize everything. We tend to look at everything emotionally and, and, and feelings direct us. We're very feelings-oriented. And because of that, we become discouraged very quickly. We become depressed very quickly. We become despondent very quickly. We, we feel like we need to rush and get some kind of therapy for the smallest little things. And for you and I, we would not have seen, if the Taliban took over the U.S. 20 years ago, we would not have seen that as a minor glitch in the program. We would have seen, we would have felt that that was the end of the world, the end of the world. And we would have, we would have given up and, and we would have had a tendency to just whine and, 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 and fall apart. And I think that all of this ties into the vital truth that we're going to look at today, a vital truth taught, about, taught by Jesus that is very important for us to grasp, not just intellectually, but in our heart. To, and this, this truth, if grasped in our heart, is going to lead us to courage and perseverance and joy and peace. And that's what I, I hope that you will see as we get to the end of this time. Now, again, as I said before, this is a very controversial passage, and there's been much said and written about it, and I can't deal with all of those controversies. Uh, so what I'm going to do, for instance, is we're going to look at verse 18 today. This is the verse that we're going to focus on today. And what I want to do is I'm going to, uh, this verse teaches in two things primarily. It, it talks about Peter, then this rock, and then, the, and then the church, and the gates of Hades. All that is tied in together. Now, this is a controversial passage because in this passage, uh, this passage is owned by the Roman Catholic Church, and they believe that this passage is the passage that makes Peter, that Jesus appoints Peter the first pope. Now, you have to understand the role of the pontiff or the pope in Roman Catholicism. That role is what's called the vicar of Christ. Pope, the pope declares himself as the vicar of Christ. And the word vicar means substitute. The pope is the Christ substitute of this world. He is Christ to this world. He ministers Christ to this world. He is the head of this world. And those, those are the things that the popes uh, declare for themselves. And they point to this passage. Look at the passage, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what I'm going to do right now is, I just want you to buckle your seatbelts here. I'm going to I'm going to hit some major bullet points as to why I think this interpretation is dreadfully wrong. But we're going to take this up in much more detail tonight in Bible study. So I'd encourage you to come tonight in Bible study. We're going to take our time working through this stuff. But let me, let me just hit the bullet points right now. What do you do when you come to a text of Scripture like this and you look at this and you say, okay, what does this mean? The first thing that you do is you look at each of the words and you understand what the words mean. So, for instance, I'll give this to you in one sense by throwing in the Greek words that are here. And I also say to you that you are Petros, Petros. You are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church. There's two words that are being used here, Petros and Petra. Petros is the word Peter, and that's where we get the word Peter, but it also means a stone or a rock. It means a stone or a rock, the kind of thing you would pick up and whip at somebody if you were a, a young boy out in the playground, and you weren't supposed to do that, kids. Don't do that, but that's, that's what that means, a stone or a rock. 
He says, on this stone, I will build, and he says, you are Peter. But then he says this, on this Petra. And what is a Petra? A Petra is another Greek word for stone, but it doesn't mean a rock. It means a cliff. It means bedrock. It means a foundation. And so what Jesus is saying is, on you, I will name you rock, and on this foundation stone, I'm going to build my church. And what was the foundation stone? Well, most interpreters, including early interpreters, tonight we're going to see Augustine himself interpreting this, saw that the foundation stone was what Peter said in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the foundation on which the church is to be built. And so, first of all, we look at the, we look at the text itself and say, Jesus is giving Peter this name rock, but he's also saying there's on this bedrock, I'm going to build my church, and that bedrock is the testimony of Peter. How do we know that that, that interpretation holds? Well, what did Peter understand? He did, what did Peter understand this was saying? Did Peter understand himself that Jesus here made him the supreme leader of the church and that on him, Peter, the church was going to be built. And all you have to do is read the, the statements, both historically and even now, that are made by the present pope. And what he's going to say is this, I am the head of the church. The church is built on me. I am the rock of the church. Come to me and in me, in me and in the Roman Catholic Church, you will find salvation. Is that what Peter preached? Is that how Peter preached? Well, listen to Peter preaching in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Peter is preaching to the Sanhedrin, and listen to what he says. These are the words of Peter. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, not me, the Pope, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. And this is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Who's the stone for Peter? Not Peter, it's Christ, it's Christ. Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, including the Roman pontiff, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For Peter, Jesus himself was the stone. Now let's turn to what Peter has to say himself. Turn with me to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. It's found on page 1,391 in your pew Bible. This is a letter that Peter wrote. This is the epistle of Peter. And listen to what Peter writes. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, he says this, Coming to him, to a living stone. Who's him? Christ. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's not pointing to himself at all. He's pointing to Christ as the head chief's cornerstone. Christ as that foundation stone. And he says, we are living stones. Being, and notice that Peter says, we're all living stones. Saying, and I'm Peter, I'm the rock, and the, the church is being built on me. That's not what he's saying at all. And then he goes on to say this, verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the scriptures, he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter's not pointing to himself, he's pointing to Christ. Therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter is pointing to Christ as the rock. Now, what does Peter think about himself? How does Peter point to himself? Look at chapter 5. 
Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Peter writes this. The elders who are among you, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder. Peter didn't see himself as the chief head charge of the entire universal church. He saw himself as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And then he tells them in verse 2 to shepherd the flock who has been made. He's telling elders, shepherd your flock. And then notice verse 3, nor being lords over those entrusted to you. Peter is not saying that he is the head of the church and everybody must listen to everything that he is going to say. Now, what about the other? Let's go back to, to uh, Matthew. What about the other apostles? What did the other apostles think went on at this time uh, with Peter? Well, in the context, first of all, the other apostles recognized, well, Matthew, when he was writing this, and the other apostles write it too, Peter himself is called Satan in verse 23, for goodness sakes. Peter's not, Peter's not been made the infallible, uh, inerrant head of the church like the Roman church says that the pontiff is. He was called Satan in this. And not only that, in, in, a, few, in, a, in, in a few chapters, the disciples are going to get into a big argument. And Jesus is going to say, what were you guys arguing about? And they said, we were arguing as to who among us is going to be the greatest. They didn't think Peter was, was proclaimed the greatest here at all. Peter actually gets rebuked by Paul in the book of Galatians, where Paul uh, points out to him his heir. In, in Acts chapter 11, Peter is called into question because he went into the house of a Gentile, and he must give an account. Peter was not seen as the, 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 the actual head of the universal church. He was first among equals, no question about it, early on. Peter preaches at Pentecost. Peter has to go to Samaria with John. Peter is sent by God to, to, to see the Gentiles. But Peter is also fallible, very fallible. He's called, he's called, he's, he's admonished for his little faith, we saw just a, a couple weeks ago. He's called Satan here. He denies Christ three times. And he's led astray by the Jewish leaders uh, in, in Antioch when Paul was there. And so the unanimous understanding of the church is that Jesus is the rock on which this foundation, Peter's testimony, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and such. We're going to look at more about at that tonight uh, when, it, when we, we'll go into more detail. But let's look at the, the primary thing that I wanted to focus on today, and that's this. Notice what else is said in this verse. <clears throat> and I say to you that you are Peter, and on this foundation stone, which is your, your, your confession that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Notice what is being said at the end of this verse. On the testimony that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, Jesus says, I will build my church. First of all, Jesus is going to build his church. For Jesus, the church is Jesus's. He is committed to his church. Please do not believe the myth and the lie that many people take today. I'm into Jesus, but I'm not into the church. How can you be into Jesus and not into the church? The church is Jesus' bride. The church is Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is that which he is building. Jesus is determined. He is building his church. And notice this, the gates of hell will not prevail against him. What does that mean? Well, the gates of Hades, obviously this is hell here. Uh, the Hades is a word that can be used for the grave or for hell, but here it's obviously being used for hell because it is in absolute direct opposition to Jesus building his church. The gates of hell shall not, and that's, I'll be using that phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word prevail means to have superior strength over, to be able to overcome, 
To be able to dominate, the gates of hell will not detain. Why does he use the word gates? Well, the word gates here is what's called a metinomy. A metinomy, little English word here for you. If you ever go on Jeopardy, you might win a bunch of money. Uh, metinomy, what's a metinomy? A metinomy is one word that is used to sort of summarize a greater issue. So, for instance, the federal government of the United States of America, oftentimes we use the metinomy Washington. We'll say Washington, in Washington, Washington, and we're referring to the federal government. Uh, the, the monarchy of England, sometimes we'll just use one word, the metonymy crown, the crown, and that will represent this. What is the gates of hell? The gates of hell is representing the power of hell, the legions of hell. Think, picture in your mind, in, in medieval times, for instance, when all of a sudden a trumpet bursts and out of the gates, the gates of a city open up, and all of a sudden this massive army comes strolling out, comes marching out with, with chariots and soldiers and horses and such. That's what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see the gates of hell. In, in the book of Revelation at one point, the gate of, of, the, of, of the abyss is opened up, and it's opened up, and all of a sudden this smoke comes out, this powerful smoke comes pouring out, and then all of a sudden in the book of Revelation, you realize that that's not smoke, that those are locusts. And then you see that those locusts actually are, they have these faces and they have this power and they have this route. And you realize that these are the, all of the demons of hell and they're coming pouring out to torment the men upon the earth. That's what it means by the gates of hell. And Jesus is saying here that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. Nothing will stop my church. Nothing will, 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 will ultimately end. The gates of hell, all of hell cannot stop what I am about to do. Now, what does that mean? That means, and this is, we're going to show you in the rest of Scripture as well, that means this. Jesus is announcing that the ultimate, complete, decisive, final victory will be his. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will defeat all of his enemies, will build his church, will establish his kingdom, and nothing will stop it. It will not be defeated. Its enemies will not prevail over it. His enemies will fail, and Jesus will win. That is what he's saying here. And the rest of the scriptures teach this as well. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, we have this wonderful, wonderful verse. And if you've ever listened to the Hallelujah Chorus, I actually listened to it this morning. If you ever listened to the Hallelujah Chorus, this is stuck right in the middle of it. And it is so absolutely powerful and so absolutely beautiful. But listen to Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded. This is the angel sounding the seven trumpets. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And you see, dear friends, this is the promise that has been going on since the beginning of the world that Jesus Christ is going to reign. The Son of God is going to come and reign and rule over this world forever and ever and ever. In Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the entire Bible, it says that the, 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 the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head, was going to destroy, was going to stomp on his head and kill him. 
Jesus Christ was going to reign. The lion out of the tribe of Judah, we're, we're told, is going to come and the scepter will never leave from him. And he will reign all, over all of the people. And then David, King David, remember King David? He's promised this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what God says to him. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, son of David, son of David, and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for me, a, a building made with living stones, the church. He will build a house for me and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Look at that last word, forever, the forever kingdom. Remember Daniel, we saw last week, Daniel, when, uh, where we get the phrase son of man. Daniel says this in Daniel 7. This is what he saw. And then to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. There it is. I will build my church. There it is. That all peoples, all peoples, nations, languages shall serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This is the kingdom that is going to eventually take over the world. Not some Muslim caliphate. This is the kingdom that is going to take over the world. And then, of course, Gabriel comes to Mary before Jesus is born. And what does he say? In Luke chapter 1, he says this. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he sh and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, the forever throne. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. It will Nothing will stop me building my church. Now, how do we know that's going to be true? Maybe it's just some deluded Galilean carpenter who was just, just spinning out stuff and saying stuff. How do we know that's true? How do we know it's going to happen? How can, how can I bank on that? Well, dear friends, he rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead. Show us the sign. Show us the sign. Jesus said, no sign will be given to this generation but one. As Jonah was in the belly, of the, uh, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, so the Son of Man will also be. I will rise again from the dead. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. It was guarded. And the tomb is empty. All of his enemies tried to make sure that he stayed in there. And the tomb is empty. And he walked and he talked and he ate and he appeared to his disciples. The tomb is empty. They saw him. They lived with him. They ate with him. They, they saw it. And then the Bible says he ascended into heaven. He ascended through the clouds. And he ascended to the right hand of the throne of the Father. All rule and all authority has been given to him. That has happened already. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is at the right hand of the throne of the Father right now. The Bible is very clear on that. So what's happening now then? What's going on? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when he has puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Here's, here's the, the church moving forward and prevailing. He's going to put an end to all rule, all authority, and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He is reigning now, putting his enemies under his feet. How is he doing that? How is he putting his enemies under his feet? Through the preaching of the gospel. 
He's sending the gospel out into all of the world. The preaching of the gospel is going forth. And he is subduing his enemies. Think of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, who hated the name of Jesus Christ, hated him and did everything to destroy the church. Everything. And what happened? He came to know Jesus Christ and he bowed before him and he said, you're my Lord. That enemy was defeated. I'll tell you another notorious enemy that was defeated. Me. Me. I came out of my womb an enemy. An enemy of God. An enemy of God. I was, I was by nature a children, a child of wrath, the Bible said. I came out of my womb declaring myself to be God. He said, Todd, when did you do that? Soon as the first time I said, mine. No, to my parents. Bam, to my sister. Give me that cookie. Me, me, me. I'm God. I make the decisions in my life. I make the decisions of who I am. I make the decisions of what I do. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide what, what my, my identity is. And I see everybody else here in my kingdom by where, how you relate to me. Do you further my, my worship of myself? Then you're my friend. Do you oppose that? Then you're my enemy. Including you, God, you're my enemy. Get out of my way. Get out of my life. I want to have nothing to do with you. I make my own decisions. I actually heard somebody say that this week. He was a comedian. He said, Jesus ain't my guy. I make my own decisions. So I thought, dude, you have no idea what you just said. You have no idea. I was an enemy of Christ. I was in rebellion against God. And then what happened? By God's grace, God opened my eyes. God called me to himself. God gave me a new heart. God subdued his enemy, brought me under the feet of Jesus. And now I willingly, with all of my heart, say, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He is my Lord. I was an enemy, and I was subdued. Dear friends, Jesus is sending out his gospel. He's building his church. Now, there are still fierce enemies that are fighting the church. The gates of hell are storming out and trying to prevail. There are many enemies to the church, and the church is seen in Scripture as in this time and this place and throughout these ages is a church that is on pilgrimage, a church that are strangers in a strange land. And there's unrelenting attacks of the fierce satanic enemies that are going on around us. It's, all, it's been happening. It's always been happening. And it will continue to happen. The church will be under siege. The church will be attacked right now. The church in China is underground. It's illegal. And yet it's growing and growing and growing and can't be stopped. Even though China is one of the most powerful countries in the world, it's trying to stop it. It can't stop it because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
In Myanmar, pastors, we know this for a fact, pastors are being pulled out of their house and being shot in front of their, parents, uh, their families. And, and yet the gates of hell will not prevail. The church will still continue to go on to Myanmar. Kill as many of them as you, as you want to. There will, the church will still go on. In Nigeria, the church is being hacked to, get to death with machetes, but the church will still go on. In this culture that we're in today, there's a growing hostility that sees the church as an enemy because we're getting in the way of the progress. Then the progress is the autonomous progress of battle against God. We don't want God. We want to define who we are, what our sex is, how we're to live, what is right, what is wrong. We want that. And the church is stopping that progress. And so the church is being seen as enemies. And the church is going to have fierce enemies. In the book of Revelation, near the end of the book of Revelation, I'm, I'm teaching that now in the Dominican, and I'm soon going to be teaching it here in our evening Bible studies. But in the book of Revelation, you have the church, the enemies are described in picture form. It's, it's picture form. It's almost like watching a movie. And all of a sudden, this dragon comes up, this dragon, this fierce dragon that just spews lies out of his mouth. And, he, and that is the devil himself. And then this beast comes out of the sea. And this beast has ten heads and seven crowns, seven heads and ten crowns. And on each of the heads is a blasphemous name that is written. And this beast is going to war against the church. And then there's a second beast that comes out of the land. And this one, he looks like a lamb. But he speaks like the devil, and he somehow is masquerades as some religious person. And then you have this woman, and she is called the Whore of Babylon. And she's riding on one of the beasts, and she's absolutely beautiful and entrancing, yet she has blood coming out of her mouth because it's the blood of the saints. And she is the world. And she is seducing and seducing and seducing. And her city is Babylon. So you have these two women. You have the, the bride of Christ and you have the whore of Babylon. You have these two cities, Babylon and the new Jerusalem, which is Christ's bride. And you have this, this weird, ugly trinity, the dragon and the two beasts, this ugly, foul trinity masquerading to be the true trinity. And this terrible war, this fierce war. And lots of Christians are being killed. And power is to rule has been given to these beasts. And you see this playing out in the book of Revelation. And yet, nevertheless, the gates of hell cannot prevail. Why? Revelation chapter 12, right in the midst of this battle. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says this. And they overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. These people were glorifying God by standing firm in their generation for the gospel. And then all of a sudden, Jesus returns on a white horse. Jesus returns on a white horse to reign and Babylon falls and crushes to the ground. And the people of the word are weeping and crying because their beloved Babylon with all of its abominations and all of its sin and all of its wretchedness and all of its materialism all falls to the ground and they're weeping. And at the same time, the saints in heaven are cheering. Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. And then one by one, the one beast is thrown alive into a lake of burning fire. Now, the second beast is thrown by the Lord Jesus like a, 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 a stinking lizard. He's thrown into this lake of fire. And then finally, the dragon himself is thrown into the lake of fire. And all of those whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown into a lake of fire by the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Dear ones, Jesus Christ is reigning now and he's sending forth his gospel and he's calling people into his kingdom and one day he is coming and he will win. 
The Lord Jesus Christ will one day rule over the United States of America. He will be the king, not president, the king. And he will rule over China. And he will rule over Russia. And he will rule over Africa. And he will rule over Europe. And he will rule over the Middle East. And he will rule over South America. And he will rule over the Pacific Islands. And he will rule and he will reign and he will bring justice and he will bring righteousness and he will bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And he will restore and he will renew and he will bring joy. Think of the leaders that are running the world right now. Think of these leaders that are running the world right now. From the President of the United States to the head of China, to the head of Russia, to the military coup in Myanmar, to the Taliban in Afghanistan. Think of this, this, this list of world rulers right now. How many of them do you admire? How many of them do you want to be like? How many of them are bring, have a passion for justice? How many of them have a passion, have love for the needy and the broken and, and, and such. How many of them have compassion? How many of them are holy and righteous and godly people? How many of them are filled with wisdom? I can't name one on the present stage. But Jesus Christ, think of him ruling and reigning and bringing justice and righteousness. And that should thrill our hearts until we say, come, Lord Jesus. And dear friends, this don't let this be some kind of fleeting thought in your head. Oh, yeah, the Bible thinks of that. And then, and then it's in, then it's out. Or you intellectually grasp it, and it's gone. We need to not think of it that way. We need to think of this as a real living hope. This world is going to end good. Jesus is going to come again and reign. Jesus, I, there may be terrible persecution up to that point. There may be terrible battles. We know there are. We see them written out. That's going to happen. But Jesus is ultimately going to reign. This world is going to be renewed. A new heavens and a new earth. No more death. No more sadness. No more loss. No more disease. No more COVID. No more nothing resurrected, glorified bodies, and it will be the saints, it will be the Christian, it will be the church, it will be the kingdom, it will be ours. We won't at all. Under the lordship and rulership and leadership and humble kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I'm coming again and I'm going to serve this meal to you. Dear friends, this hope has to be real to us. Is this real to you? Did you think about it at all this week? Yeah, the news is bad, but Jesus is going to win. Yeah, the news is bad, but Jesus is coming back. He's going to make it all right again. Yeah, Christians are being persecuted, but guess what? Doesn't matter. We're going to have the final say. And I'm not saying that arrogantly. In, in Corinth, the church was arguing and fighting, and they were taking themselves to court. And listen to what Paul said. This is how deep this thing was woven in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this. Do you not know? It's almost like a byword he's throwing out. Do you not know, by the way, I expected them to know this, that the saints will judge the world? Do you ever think about that? 
you're going to judge the world. And if the world will, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's telling the Corinthian church, straighten up. You guys should be figuring this stuff out on your own. You're going to judge the world one day. Then look what he says in the next verse. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? <laughs> I mean, he just throws this stuff out there. <laughs> how, many, how, how much do you and I think about that this week? Wow, I'm going to judge the world. I mean, think about it. It's kind of hard to actually think about. These Taliban dudes, bring them up here. Let's judge them. Lord Jesus, sitting on his throne judging, he's included us to be on his throne to judge them. The beast, the dragon, the other beast, the foul killers of those who, who, are, who, are, who, are, who are destroying this world. We're going to be a part of that. Jesus Christ is going to win. He's going to reign. And we need to take a little bit, a little bit of wisdom from these Taliban dudes and say this, things might look bad right now. Christians, even in the next generation, could be suppressed underground. But you know what we need to do? Keep the vision alive. Keep sharing the gospel. Raise up a generation. Raise up this little generation. Raise them up to be loyal followers of King Jesus. Loyal followers to the kingdom of God. Loyal followers and faithful to the truth. Holding on to the truth. We need to raise them up. We need to watch over them. There's a blip on the screen right now. But don't give up. Why? Because Jesus Christ is going to reign. The Taliban are going to fail. The communists are going to fail. The anti-Christian forces are going to fail. The secularists are going to fail. They are all going to fail, dear ones. Jesus Christ is going to win and going to reign. And we need to be dedicated to that. We need to push back and we need to resist. And we need to say, I'm not going in your direction. I'm not going with you. I'm staying loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can call me what you want to call me. You can say all kinds of things against me. You can exclude me. You can take away my rights, but I am not going to be disloyal to him because he is the only rightful king of kings and lord of lords. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And dear friends, don't resist with meanness. Don't be dragged down to the level of the Taliban. Don't be dragged down to the level of the seculars who just, who just can, can, can yell and scream and cancel. Resist with love. Resist with love. Oh, dear ones, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mr. Taliban, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Forsake Allah, turn to the one who's the true and living God. Oh, dear ones, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember one time somebody tried to scare me and said, told me that he was a witch. He's a witch. I'm a witch. I cast spells. And I looked at him and I, I said, <laughs> really? I said, I feel so bad for you. He said, why? I was supposed to be scared. I wasn't scared. I said, I feel so bad for you. He said, why? I said, because you're worshiping the devil, right? Yes. Yes. One day, Jesus is going to pick him up like a lizard and throw him into a lake of fire. And you're going to join him unless you repent and you turn. Dear ones, we need to have compassion. We need to have compassion. How about you? Are you in love with this world? Is this world everything to you? Are you God of your world? Are you in control? Are you calling the shots? Are you independent of the Lord Jesus Christ and part of the rebellion? You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're on the losing side. 
Are you siding with secularism? Are you siding with some weird religious? Are you siding with Islam? Are you siding? You're going to fail. Jesus Christ is coming again and he's going to judge. He's coming to establish his kingdom. Oh, please, I beg you, I beg of you, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him and you'll find not only your king, but your shepherd, your Lord, your friend. Somebody who's never, nobody's ever loved you as much as he has. And he will give you everlasting life. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you that we know you and that you have made yourself known to us. We thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of all, <laughs> King of all kings, but you were also the humble carpenter of Nazareth and you were the one who gave your life for us, who died on the cross who died the death we should have died, who gave yourself for us, such a loving, compassionate, good Savior, bringing such a loving, compassionate, and good kingdom. We praise you. We thank you. And we thank you for the privilege of being called into this kingdom. And we pray that you will help us to be absolutely committed and loyal to your kingdom and to you, no matter what the world throws at us, to not be seduced away, but to love and serve our great King. Help us, we pray, as your church. Bless your church. If dark days are ahead for your church, help us to just be strong, to be stubborn if need be, to be resistant, to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to you. And we will praise you and glorify you in your precious name. Amen.